You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. This summer we're attending class in the Hebrews 11 School of Faith. Hebrews 11 is a list of people from the Old Testament who live by faith. And each of them has a specific lesson in how to live by faith for us. And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife. So what's the lesson we learned from Sarah? Let's read Hebrews 11, 11, and 12. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. By faith, Sarah received ability to conceive. I think the lesson in faith we learn from Sarah is that faith gives us access to abilities that we would not have otherwise. That faith connects us to God and his unlimited power, wisdom, and strength to be able to do things that we couldn't do otherwise. Uh, And this morning, as we look at Sarah, I want to look at three things. One, faith requires a problem, which is why we all have problems. Faith requires a promise, And faith requires a decision. And I think you'll find uh, Sarah a great instructor today. Let's pray. Father, we need to uh, remember that you are our creator. You are our savior. You are our Lord. You go before us, come behind us, lay your hand upon us. I pray, Lord, that we can humble ourselves today, that you will become bigger and we will become smaller in our own sight. And I pray that you'll instruct us in how to live more by faith than by sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First lesson I think we learned from Sarah is that faith always requires a problem, and a problem we can't solve on our own. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. When we meet Sarah and Abraham, Abraham is 75, Sarah is 65. They have no children because Sarah is barren. And yet God promises that he will make their descendants more in number than the sands of the seashore, the stars of the sky. And then God waits 25 more years before he gives them that child. When, when Abraham is 100, and, and is, as the verse said here, as good as dead in these things. It doesn't matter, mean talking about his health, because he'll live for 75 more years. It's talking about his reproductive capabilities. And God waits until neither of them can ever have a child, and then he gives them Isaac. Why? Why didn't God just select the normal couple 
that could have the kid the normal way. Because that way, God gets the glory. That way, it has to be by faith. And I think the big lesson that we learn from Sarah is that faith requires us to be in a situation we can't solve on our own. We can't handle on our own. And that's why we have problems. Anybody ever have problems? Anybody ever have problems and say, I don't understand why this is happening to me. I don't know what to do. I can't get out of this. Well, you're in the school of faith. Look what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so we despaired of, of life. Paul's talking about the time he was in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they had had a great ministry there for a couple of years. They'd been able to reach all of the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. But then there were so many Christians, it began to, to impact the economy of the region. And, and the major industry of Ephesus was the manufacture of these little silver idols. That's what kept the economy afloat, and so many people were becoming Christians that nobody was buying the idols anymore. And the merchants of the city led this, this riot against the Christians, and Paul and his friends were convinced, we're not getting out of Ephesus alive. This is the end. We're going to die. They despaired even of life. Why does God put them through that? Well, let's read on. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. Why does Paul and his team go through this terrifying experience? So they won't trust themselves. They'll trust in God. Faith is depending on God for things we can't control, for things that we can't achieve. And, and if you're a Christian, you know that, right? Religion is are all spelled the same way, D-O, right? Because every religion in the world is stuff you must do to be accepted by God. Rules you have to keep. Rituals you must observe. Meetings you must attend. No matter what the religion is, that's it. It's about you, your performance. But the gospel is not about, not spelled D-O, it's spelled D-O-N-E. Because according to the gospel, we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what he has done. The Son of God becomes a human being to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He lives the life we fail to live so that God can credit his perfect record of obedience to us as a gift when we put our faith in him. He dies the death we deserve to die, bearing our punishment on the cross so that God is free to pardon us. He rises from the dead so that we can live eternally with him. And 
A person becomes a Christian simply by saying in faith, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I trust in Jesus to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Now, that, if you're a Christian, you know that. That I became a Christian because I could not save myself. But after you become a Christian, it's real easy to go right back to our old habit of depending on ourselves, depending on our solution, depending on our plan, depending on our power. And so to remind us and to grow our faith, God allows problems to come into our lives to say, you're not that adequate. You're not that competent. Your solutions aren't really very good. You need to depend on me, just like you depended on me for salvation. Now you need to depend on me day by day by day, and that's why you all have problems. Faith is impossible without problems. We have to face the fact that we are insufficient. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God who has made us adequate as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's the life of faith. Are you adequate? No. And, and today, God will send a few more reminders to you that you're not adequate, right? Not because he's mean, but because he wants to develop faith. And how we respond to those problems indicates whether we want our faith to grow or we just want to be comfortable. When I coached high school swimming at San Leandro High, I discovered there are two types of swimmers. There are recreational swimmers who only swim during swim season, and there are year-round swimmers who are much more serious athletes. And the more year-round swimmers a team has, the stronger the team is. Now, on the day of the meet, recreational swimmers try just as hard as year-round swimmers. But they're not as good. Because the rest of the week, they don't take swimming as seriously. I remember my rec swimmers, they were always the last to arrive and the first to want to leave the the workout. And they always missed at least a day of practice every week to go to the dentist or to go shopping with mom or to do extra homework. And they always complained about the workout. Can't we do less? Can't we have a fun time? Can't, you know, it's just they, they wanted to be comfortable because they were recreational swimmers. But the year-round swimmers, they were the first to arrive and the last to leave. They always wanted more yardage. They always wanted more coaching. They always wanted to be pushed harder because they realized they wouldn't improve. And the same thing is true for us as Christians. If my goal is comfort, I resent problems. If my goal is the growth of my faith, I embrace problems because I know faith is impossible without problems. God allows problems into my life so I will not trust in myself, but in him who raises the dead. So here's the first application. Define your problem. Define your problem. Why is this a problem? What can I do? What can only God do? 
Faith requires a problem. Second, faith requires a promise. Why did God give Sarah the ability to conceive? Let's read it. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper, of life, proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, when had God promised to give Sarah a child? Well, it happens in Genesis 18. Three men visit Abraham. It turns out to be the Lord himself and two angels on their way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham welcomes them. He shows them typical Middle Eastern hospitality. He makes a big meal for them. And after they finish the meal, the Lord has this conversation with Abraham. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, they're in the tent. So they're sitting outside eating. Sarah is in the tent behind them. He, the Lord, said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door. She's eavesdropping, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Abraham is 99 years old at this point. Sarah is 89. So, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my, my Lord being old also. And when she hears she's going to have a child in a year, it just strikes her as very funny as she thinks about renewing marital relations, which they haven't had for years. And uh, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But she just starts laughing. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. According to Hebrews 11, Sarah didn't just laugh, but she believed. She believed that promise. I hear people say, if you want God to act on your behalf, you need to visualize what you want God to do for you. You need to, uh, God doesn't want you living in that dump any longer. You need to see clearly in your mind the house you want God to give for you. See, how many bedrooms does it have? How's the kitchen decorated? What's the yard look like? What's the, you, the clearer you see it and believe it, then you'll achieve it. It's almost like God is a genie to grant us our wishes if we can just use the power of faith to control him. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith always requires a promise, something God has promised to do. And faith is me believing what God has promised to do for me. Faith without a promise is presumption. I can't just pick something out of the air and say, I'm believing God to do this. Where did he promise to do that? Where did he promise? Faith begins with God. So faith not only requires 
a problem, it also requires a promise to go with that problem of what God promises to do for you in this situation. When we uh, left campus ministry at Cal to go work for First Covenant Church, we had to find a place to live in, in Oakland because for years we'd been living in the crusade-owned apartments and in Berkeley, and we did not realize how low our rent really was. And so it was a, a wake-up call as we saw we, we can't afford to live in Oakland. Plus the fact that when they offered me a job, I didn't think enough to ask them, well, what's the salary? I assumed they'd be paying me more than Campus Crusade. And it turned out they were actually paying less. And this has become a, a bad habit of mine. Every job change I've ever made, I've, it's, it's meant a, a reduction in income. Not a great career plan. Uh, but anyway, so here we are. But we've got Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We knew we were in God's will. We knew we were seeking first God's kingdom. We just knew that God was going to have to provide a place for us to live. Well, I had a friend who was a realtor, and, and he says, you know, it, with the economy where it is right now, and interest rates at that time were around 13% mortgage rates. And, and so he said, you know, what you're going to pay for a mortgage is going to be about what you have to pay for rent. So you want to look for a house. And we were dumb enough to say, yeah, let's look for a house. You know, We have no money. And, and we looked at a few places, and they just weren't right. But then he took us to a little secluded neighborhood in the Oakland Hills. And the tiniest house on the biggest lot in the neighborhood was for sale. It was a mess. And we loved it. We loved it. And, and he said, the owner, she's offering it for $100,000. And she's willing to carry the loan because we couldn't qualify for a, a bank would just laugh at us if we would have applied for a loan. And so he says, so on your income, you can afford a $60,000 mortgage. That'll only be 50% of your income. And that's before taxes, insurance, or anything like that. This is how dumb we were. But if you can just raise $40,000 for a down payment, you can afford this house. And we thought, well, if God wants us to have the house, it'll happen. So we put, gave her an offer, and she accepted it. And we had 30 days to raise $40,000. So I sold my Apple stock, which had never gone up, um, for the $2,000 that I had bought it for two years before that. That was all the cash we had. And then God just started bringing money in. It was the strangest thing. People would say, we heard you're buying a house. Can we help? Can we help? Can we help? And finally, that $40,000 came in, and we were able to move into that house. We have lived in that house ever since. We've, we've uh, built onto it. We've remodeled it. It has been one of God's greatest blessings in our lives, we still wouldn't live anywhere else in the Bay Area. It was impossible. We had a promise. And so, as you, as you look at your problem, ask, 
What has God promised? There are almost 9,000 promises in the Bible. Why does God put all these promises in the Bible? Because he wants you to believe him. He wants you to trust in him and depend on him to do for yourself what you can't do. So, to walk by faith, you've got to have a problem, something you can't solve yourself. And then you need to have a promise. And that's why the Bible says, do I have this verse up here? Yeah, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Where does faith come from? Reading your Bible. Because the Bible's got all the promises, what God promises to do. And faith is just taking the promise and applying it to your life. Does that make sense? So faith requires a problem. Define your problem. Why is this a problem? What do I need God to do? Faith requires a promise. What's my promise? And if you don't have one yet, read your Bible. That's one of the main reasons we read the Bible, is to find out what God has promised to do for those who trust him. Finally, from the example of Sarah, faith requires a decision. Do you have any friends who say they believe in Jesus, but they don't live like it? We all have people like that, don't we? That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is acting like we believe what God says. And so faith not only requires a problem and a promise, it also requires some action on our behalf. It, it, it requires that I'm going to act as if God is going to do this. Now, how do we see that in Sarah? Well, we just talked about it. When Sarah hears that she's going to have a baby in a year, what's her first reaction? She laughs. Why does she laugh? Because having marital relationships with her husband, who is as good as dead in these things, uh, and that's, that's not referring to his health, after so many years, it just strikes. But the, here's the point. Sarah did not expect an immaculate conception. She knew that if they were going to have a, a child, they were going to have to do it the normal way. They were going to have to act. And throughout the Bible, whenever people walk by faith, they act on that faith. And then they see God work. Jesus was in Samaria. Twelve lepers came to him. They said, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Heal us. And Jesus says, go find a priest, who was the public health official. Let him examine you and then offer the sacrifices required by Moses. Now, they could have said, but wait a minute, we're not healed yet. If we go to the priest, he's going to say, you got leprosy. But they don't do that. They set off. They go find a priest. And it says, as they were going, they were healed. As they were going, they were healed. That's the way faith works. Faith steps out on nothing but the promise and acts. And as we act, we see God do exactly what he said he would do. Sometimes the decision we need to make is just calm down. Remember the story that Jesus and his disciples are in the boat and Jesus says, let's go over the other side. And the disciples say, okay, because they're fishermen, they know, they know boats. They know the Sea of Galilee. 
They get in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The mother of storm, all storms comes up. The, the wind is howling. The waves are towering over them. And Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. Finally, they wake Jesus up. They say, don't you care that we're perishing here? At least you could help bail. And Jesus wakes up and he says, hush. And the wind stops. And the sea becomes like glass. And then Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? What should the disciples have done? They should have let Jesus sleep. They could have, should have just kept rowing. Jesus didn't say, let's go to the middle and drown. He said, let's go to the other side. Implication, you're going to make it to the other side. But they panic, and he says, where's your faith? Sometimes faith is just putting yourself in a position where God can use you. In one of the wars between Israel and the Philistines, Saul and the army of Israel are on one side of a deep gorge. And the Philistines are on the other side of the gorge, and neither side wants to attack. Because to attack, you have to climb down into the gorge and then fight your way up. Each one wants to hold the high ground. So they're in a stalemate for months. You got the two armies just sitting there doing nothing. Jonathan, who is Saul's son, he's, he's thinking, we can't go on like this. So he says to his armor bearer, let's go pick a fight with the Philistines. So just the two of them, he says, God can save by a few or many, so let's go see what God will do. So they climb down into the gorge, and as they get to the bottom, they say, now, let's show ourselves the Philistines. If the Philistines say, wait for us, come, we'll come down there. We'll wait for them. But if they say, come up here, then we'll know God has given them into our hand and we'll go after them. How did Jonathan know that? I don't know. I don't know. I, it just, he just, maybe he just said it. But anyway, they show themselves the Philistines high above. The Philistines use the old Philistine trick. Oh, Come up here. We want to show you something. Philistines weren't real clever. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer, they climb up the rocks, and, and in this narrow little trail going up through the gorge, they begin to encounter Philistine soldiers. And, and Jonathan will knock down one, and his armor bearer behind him will kill him. Knock down one. And pretty soon, there's a lot of sound, a lot of noise, and, and the Philistines are starting to panic because they can't see what's happening. They just hear all this battle, and they begin to run away. And the Israelites on the other side, they see them running away and say, let's charge. They charge, and there's a great battle, all because Jonathan, his armor bearer, took a chance. They stepped out on faith. They knew that God would use them, and, and that's faith. That's faith. Faith requires a decision. When I was uh, a younger Christian, I came under the influence of, of some Bible teachers who uh, taught let go and let God. And, and they taught that you can do nothing in your own strength, which is true. That's, that's the whole point. And so, their conclusion is, because you can do nothing on your own, that God has to do it all, therefore, your job, faith does nothing. Faith just waits for God to do it. And I got really good at doing nothing. It came natural. And I, and I would say, 
Well, if God wants to reach this person with the gospel, then he will make that person come over and ask me, how can I be saved? <laughs> Only God can defeat this sin in my life that I keep falling into. So God, please free me from this sin. And nothing happened. He didn't free me from it. And I began to get really frustrated with that because I thought there's got to be more to the Christian life than doing nothing because it's not working. Nothing's happening. And, and I, I memorized Romans chapter 6, and I've told this story before, but if you are a Scripture memorizer, and I'm assuming you all are because the Bible says to do that, Memorize Romans 6. It'll change your life more than anything else. And I somehow I knew that Romans 6 was life-changing, but every commentary and book I read about it just confused me. It was just nice religious platitudes, but how does that work out in real life? So I thought, i got to figure this out myself. So I memorized it and, and studied it phrase by phrase by phrase, and one day it hit me. I was in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Therefore, and what's come before is because when Christ came into my life, the old me died. When I came into union with Christ, everything true of him became true of me. He was crucified. The old me was crucified. The old John Bruce died. The old slave of sin was killed. And a new John Bruce was resurrected who is in union with Christ, is holy, blameless, and pure, and has all the power he needs to defeat sin, no longer a slave to sin, but now a free man. Therefore, because that's true of you, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And I realized, who's not supposed to let sin reign? And I've still got my old body. I'm, not, I'm a new person living in an old body. Sin is still trying to rule who is to not let sin reign? Not God. God's already done everything he needs to do. Me. I have to choose not to let sin. I have to say no to sin. And I, when I finally, that kind of turned it, the light on to me. And I realized that when temptation came, I didn't need to plead with God, say, please deliver me from the sin. I just needed to say, no. No. I didn't need power. I just needed to use the power God said he already gave me. And so the first time I said no very tentatively, and the temptation evaporated. And the next time, the same thing happened. And I got more and more confident that, that when temptation came, I could say yes to God and no to sin, and I could carry through on that because God gave me the power as I did that. But I had to make the decision. Now, you say, how long have you been living a sinless life? Well, <laughs> that hasn't happened. But I do know that when I sin, it's because I choose to sin, not because sin makes me sin. Does that make sense? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Did we put that one up there? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace did not prove vain toward me, but I labored more than anyone, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul says, everything I am is by God's grace, God's power, God's ability. But that doesn't mean I do nothing. That means I work harder than everybody, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Faith always involves a decision. I work as if it depends 100% on me, and I trust as if it depends 100% on God. 
And that's how I experience God's power. Does that make sense? So you define your problem. You define the process. I define the promise. And then finally, you define what decision do I need to make? If I really believe this promise, how will I behave? What will I do? We believe God's promise to give us a house, so we made an offer. We came up with money. We put money down. We, we're we're going to lose it all, look like idiots if God didn't show up. But we put ourselves in a position for God to work. And I think so many Christians are not experiencing the power of God that's available simply because we're not doing anything. We sit back and don't step out on faith. That's the way you become a Christian. A Christian is not a person who just mentally arrives at the fact, oh, I guess Jesus is the Son of God and the Bible is right, and I guess I'm a Christian now. No, a Christian is a person who makes a decision. Because Jesus is the Son of God, He's my Lord. He's my Savior. Jesus, come into my life. You be my ruler. You be my Lord. You make my decisions for me. You direct me the way I go. My life belongs to you. And that's how you become a Christian because you're putting, you're putting action to your faith. Does that make sense? It's not passive. It's active. And if you've never made that decision, you're only a prayer away. Just say, the Bible says that that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart believes, resulting in justification. With the mouth, one confesses, resulting in salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you're my Savior. Come into my life. Make me a new person. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the example of your daughter, Sarah, believing you to do something that she, her whole life, had been incapable of doing. And we know we're in the same situation as she was. I pray that we will depend on you to empower us to live the life you've called us to live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.